Shepherd of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts. Step forth, take up arms, and try with honor to land a blow against me. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of The Green Knight. Before we celebrate the birth of our Christ, let us honor one of our own who has done great things in his name. Hosted by Stuart, Justin, and Jacob. Friends, brothers. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. You understand this challenge? I do. We hope you enjoy the show. Are you ready? Today, we are discussing The Green Knight, starring Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, and Ralph Innocent. Written and directed by David Lowry. This is your host with questionable honor, Justin. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who's been drinking the sacrament all night, if you know what I mean. Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) I think I do. Hey, are we missing something here? Like, what happened to Arnie? Yeah, right? Feel like we're missing our right arm or something. Yeah, it's been a hot (laughs) minute, I think, since I've been on the show that Arnie wasn't on. Xanadu? For the donors is is what's coming to mind here. But uh, we should just say, whatever you think of The Green Knight and this curveball movie we're throwing out there, it could have been Jungle Cruise. Like, (laughs) that was the big movie of the weekend. And we were pressed to find a movie to put out this week because our co-collaborator Arnie has injured himself. He is fine. He will live. He did not lose his head. But he was not available for recording or watching movies. And that meant that we couldn't fill up the space with a video game movie. I know you're really upset about that, Justin. (laughs) Yeah, you you know what the saying is, when the cat is away, the mice will play. Or when Arnie's not around, I guess we'll review artsy A24 films. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, movies that I'm going to just go ahead and say he would hate. I think if Arnie were here, he would really, he already has admitted, and I'm not a fan of fantasy movies, but he really does not like fantasy fantasy films this is an a24 fantasy film and if you don't know what that means we'll get into it but yes artsy challenging provocative this is definitely not your father's lord of the rings yeah i mean none of us want to speak for arnie but i think we all are on the same page that i'm guessing this would not be his cup of tea or many again i think it will be a surprise to many people when i saw the ads yeah it kind of looked like a horror movie but i was thinking okay what do i know about this the green knight there's this old poem and tolkien actually adapted it and probably took inspiration it was like one of his first translations that he did yeah so i'm thinking something about the hobbit we're gonna see like a (laughs) like a rudimentary hobbit in this right like that's what this will be oh no if that's what you've come for you really are just go to jungle cruise yeah i will say based on the latest trailer that i saw for this and i've been excited for this one since 2020 when it was supposed to come out but it did look like it was going to be much more of a fantasy film there's talking foxes and giants and it's a fantasy film but it's not like that big adventure type that that you might have got a sense of from the trailer yeah and that's even true of the poem i did hunt this thing down i don't know if you guys know anything about sir well i always said sir gawain 
and the Green Knight, but I guess it's Darwin. That's that's how I'm going to call him for this podcast. I guess you saw that Sean Connery film, because there's a lot of Gawain in that. (laughs) Gawain, yeah, was one of the lowliest knights on the round table. He gets this whole, it's a big poem, but it's, it's not a big read. It's, you know, for a poem, if you had to sing this with a lute, it would take you all day. But it's only about 100 pages long. And essentially, yeah, the surprise of it is, if you thought it was going to be Beowulf or the Odyssey or somebody recounting this epic slaying that they had to do in all these Herculean labors, no, 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 no. It's predominantly Christian in nature. It really does feel like someone that took the holiday of Christmas to heart and tried to find chivalry beyond the ideas of what a knight killing somebody would be. In my understanding, because I did deep dive after I saw this film, I didn't know anything about the Green Knight. I mean, even when it comes to King Arthur, I know Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That, that's yes. about the depth of my knowledge. <laughs> and, and maybe that Disney sword in the stone. When he loses his head, I'm like, that's just a flesh wound, right? Like, you just, you can't not think of that Holy Grail bit. Yeah. But I did go and, like, I listen. I'm like, let, let me see. I look it up on YouTube, found someone, like, reading the actual, like, middle English version of this, which you can't understand at all. But it sounds like, a you know, someone singing in a nice foreign language. It, it was pretty sounding. But what was interesting to me, like, when I was researching this is, like, all the adventures in between him, like, the character leaving to go after the Green Knight, it just goes, yeah, he went on a bunch of adventures. Now let's talk to him about hanging out at this Lord and Lady's house for most of the time. Like, all those adventure stuff is, like, they have to make all that up, I guess. Yeah, if, if you thought it was about ghosts and giants and thieves and, and fighting people, again, all the things a quest movie would beg you to think about in that poem... It's just minimized. It is a a line or two. And after those couplets, we're going to get back into this character contemplating what chivalry really means. And it means being truthful and not cheating with a man's wife. And yeah, just a moral code. It really is a moral lesson wrapped up in Arthurian legend. And it certainly isn't something that I would have gravitated to at any point in my life. But apparently the director, David Lowry, has liked it since high school, has thought about it, has always wanted to do his version. And it's because of David Lowry that I was so hyped for this movie. I've only seen a couple of his other films. One is the only live action Disney remake I've seen and I ever plan on seeing. And that was Pete's <laughs> Dragon. Like, I think before that really became in vogue to just like, hey, let's just recreate the cartoon and we'll we'll throw in a deleted song. Like that Pete's Dragon felt like he was actually going for something really different and, and deep. And I don't know if it totally works, but I, I appreciate what he was going for. And then he did a little movie with Casey Affleck where Casey Affleck just wears a sheet as a ghost and stands in the corner and watches things happen <laughs> called The Ghost Story. And it's amazing. I love that film. I love it. Yeah, I've seen both of those films. And yes, this is a a director that is consumed with death. Like, if you thought Pete's Dragon, Disney movie, it's all (laughs) going to be about playing at a lighthouse. No, no, no. It's all about grieving for your dead parents. And it's heavy for a Disney redo. Yeah, I was surprised at how dramatic heft it had to that thing. It wasn't great, but it was certainly more challenging than Beauty and the Beast. So... I was impressed. I took note of him there. I saw a ghost story as well. I don't know if I loved it, but it certainly was strange and unforgettable. There's like a three-minute scene of a woman just eating casserole as she's mourning her dead husband. It's six. 
I timed it. Is it yes. six minutes? <laughs> a six-minute scene of a woman eating a pie. I'm not even kidding. Very artsy. Again, yes. if you were wondering where art movies have gone in the 2020s, here is the man that is going to keep that legacy up. He's acting like it's still 1950 and Igmar Bergman never died, and we're going to just do art movies. What do you think, Justin? Have you ever, are you a fan of Arthurian legend or do you know anything about this director? Yeah, you know, coming into this, I kind of felt like, okay, so maybe I'm going to come off as the uneducated plebe here who doesn't know much about Arthurian legend, but it's good to hear that neither of you guys are, you know, Mm -mm. super seeped in this stuff either. And it was more about David Lowry, the studio, and just, you know, the, the trailers that may have gotten you, Jacob, mostly excited about this. So, yeah, I mean, going into this, I knew nothing of it. I knew nothing of the poem until after I came out of it, and I kind of did a deep dive like Jacob did after the fact to kind of catch myself up on what I might be missing with this. So, yeah, I kind of came in as a blank slate on this, and good. it hit me at some point that I may have napped through the Sean Connery version at some point during high school, because I do have some memories of that. <laughs> yes, I did too. I didn't know about that version until doing research for this, and I napped through it too. Boy, what a boring movie. <laughs> you know, here's what I will say. Yes, th- this poem has been filmed three times before, twice by the same director. This guy named Stephen Weeks in the 1970s got some English money and Murray Head and tried to do a semi-faithful version that ultimately it's all about, like, thematically, it's nothing like the movie we're here to talk about today. It's not dark. It's very much about chivalry. And the problem is it looks like a Shakespeare troupe with, you know, like, leggings and just bad wigs. They just didn't have the production values to pull it off. So he remade it. In the 80s, he went to Canon Films to get money. (laughs) I was going to say, like, you're ragging on a Shakespeare production. It's got to look better than this canon picture. No, no. The canon movie is looking so much better than his original movie. I have to say, after Zardoz, the best costume Sean Connery has ever appeared in. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He's essentially playing green Santa Claus. He's got glitter on his face. It's great. Yeah, it's quite a shock. But again, you have to remember, we think of Sean Connery as this legend. But outside of Bond, before he won his Oscar in Untouchables, he did a lot of shit. And I mean a lot of shit. And this is one of those shitty movies. Yeah, like Sword of the Valiant. Awful. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and Miles O'Keefe is Gawain. He was uh, the Tarzan in the Bo Derek movie, if you ever saw that atrocity from the 80s. It's a bad movie, but you know, for canon films, I'm just going to go ahead and say it's better than you might think. Given how bad all of their films are, (laughs) it was surprisingly true to what the guy originally tried to do in the 70s. But yeah, he had more money, but it sure didn't look good. And you're right, it's boring. And then they made a TV version in the 90s I didn't even bother with. Clearly, somebody was thinking Game of Thrones... You know, Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. What other properties can we bring to the screen that have that classic quality, Beowulf, and yet we won't have to pay the rights to? And so, again, I wonder if this was the property that a studio would want to cling to if they wanted to make an epic swords and sandals fantasy film. I think it's a, it's a good instinct to grab onto something that has its roots in 
lore like this rather than just create a new fantasy world out of nothing whole cloth you know i mean you know a willow or something like that out of nowhere is probably a bigger task and harder to grab an audience as evidenced by willow yes clearly <laughs> not everyone can pull that off right ron howard <laughs> well willow is definitely an influence here we're gonna find out mm. Yeah, I definitely feel like this is always going to be a strange property if you're going to be faithful to it. And all of the earlier versions did change things so that it could basically be the story of a a boy that became a man, chivalry, and how questing makes you cool. This is definitely not the tack of this new Green Knight. And uh, again, part of what drew me to this was that, yes, the director had an interesting resume, but all those trailers... This didn't look like fantasy. This looked like a straight-up horror movie. This thing looked frightening as hell. Well, yeah, I mean, A24, there was a trailer for this film before I saw The Green Knight, Lamb. I don't know if you've seen this trailer. Yes. Which, <laughs> yep. but yeah, it's like, if you've seen Sweet Tooth on Netflix or read that comic, it looks like the scary version of that. Like, A24 <laughs> always has that sense. Like, yeah, it could start off as a drama or as a swords and sandals adventure, but at some point it's going to turn scary, I feel. And let me help people out in case A24 doesn't mean it anything. It is a relatively new company. They've been around for about 10 years now. Their big hits have been, well, they won the Oscar for Moonlight, but we've covered them with The Witch and Hereditary. And they tend to do elevated horror. They tend to take uh, scenarios that feel artsy and then instill them with a real unique terror situation that, yeah, oftentimes I will just see their work without knowing the plot, without knowing the director or the cast or anything. I'm always on board to sign up for their movies because they're an experience. One thing I can guarantee you, every movie they put out, good or bad, and they made some clunkers, they're transportive. They will take you to a place. You will feel like you have gone somewhere when you have seen their films. And I love that. I didn't know much about this studio going in, like I said before, but coming out of this movie, regardless of what I think about it at the end, I think what I'm taking away from this experience is that I'm going to check out a lot more stuff from A24 just based on what I've learned in the research process here. Yeah, I will give that an endorsement. People should check out more of their stuff. Some really interesting stuff. But this film, this is different than if it would have come out on time. It was supposed to come out last year like every other film that it feels like we're reviewing this summer mm. but it, it was supposed to come out south by southwest that got canceled i know south by southwest they're gonna go like oh we're gonna do like a week where you could purchase the films and watch them online and this was gonna be one of them like i'm i'm down i'm ready to pay whatever you want to charge me to see this film and watch it on my tv but i guess david lowry didn't want to do that it didn't stream at all and then he spent the next six months recutting it i guess he wasn't happy with the cut so this is i'm guessing very different than what we would have seen if we watched it a year ago well that's what happened when you you know when you're on a deadline you're a director for hire you feel like okay i have this much time to write it this much time to film it this much time to tinker with it in the editing room if they even let you in there because sometimes it gets handed to an editor and you have no control over what they put out there and then you move on but yes this is one of the movies first impacted by covid Four days before it had its world premiere, it was yanked. And I do think that yeah, Lowry talks about it being an opportunity and that he spent a lot more time retinkering. Did he improve it? It's hard to know. Well, no one has seen that original cut but him. But I definitely feel like he feels like he arrived at a more fully realized vision than what he would have turned in if this had opened last May. Now, here we are, end of July 2021. 
And yeah, I think it's being marketed, as far as I can tell, I mean, it opened in my small little town here. It's being marketed like a major summer movie, and I just can't wait to see how that plays <laughs> to summer movie audiences. I did see this movie twice. My first audience was opening night Thursday, very small, but I sat next to a man that was, well, he had uh, no problem expressing every thought that he had. And as soon Uh-oh. as he was Uh-oh. like, A24, that must be a new company. I've never heard of them before. Uh-oh, you're you're in for a ride. <laughs> I was like, normally I'd be annoyed by this, but now I'm leaning in. I'm like, ooh, this will be fun commentary. I want to see how he experiences this. And then I went back last night and saw it with a big audience. Again, it looked like everyone was there for Lord of the Rings. It was a packed crowd. <laughs> That's interesting because I, I wish I had a chance to see this a second time before this review. I feel like it's one you really do need to see a few mm-hmm. times to grab everything. But the audience I went to, there's three other people. Mm, yeah, I think that will be most people's experience. It is a small movie being marketed like a big movie. That's kind of what I was thinking too. This movie may be a perfect storm of opportunity for the studio, you know, like like you already talked about being canceled at, at South by and all that good stuff, and now being brought out in the height of summer when movies are just now coming back, it it may or may not, you know, make this box office bigger than what it should be. But my theater experience was first showing Thursday evening, and it was in one of the smaller auditoriums, but it was still pretty full, you know? I had had people sitting one seat over from me that always makes me feel uncomfortable, even not in COVID times. It's just like, (laughs) I need my personal space. Mm -hmm. You know, luckily... They decided to get up and leave about halfway through this movie. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they just got confused because they put intermission on the screen and they thought there was going to be a break. <laughs> I want to stress that, though. This will not be everyone's cup of tea. You will need to work at this movie, even if you think you want this. And I thought I did. I was surprised by the challenge. This movie is a hard sit. It is not pure entertainment. It's not going to whisk you away on an adventure. It's going to challenge you to go somewhere dark. Even though the ads, I don't know if you guys saw it, there was like one funny little retro commercial where they pretended there was a Green Knight role-playing game, like (laughs) D&D. I did not see that. (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh, go hunt that one down. Again, it creates this impression that this is going to be a real fun throwback to, I don't know, Excalibur and Willow and and what have you. I know A24, you can look it up on their YouTube channel. They put out a little video, maybe three minutes long. Everything you need to know about the Green Knight before you see it, narrated by Ralph Ineson, who plays the Green night like I wish I kind of had seen that before because again I went into this not knowing about the Athorian legend and that one it kind of gives you a brief overview and kind of prepares you for what you're going to see yeah come on you've seen Last Crusade we saw King Arthur's <laughs> ghost guarding the Holy Grail and yes just like that Doctor Strange TV movie Morgan Le Fay is like the villain we'll, we'll talk about what it might represent in Arthurian legend but I think another thing the movie has done is they've turned the characters all generic you will never even I think have the character King Arthur identified as anything other than uncle like they really do not play up the fact that these are classic characters uh, we're, we're to only focus on Garwin and the Green Knight yeah matter of fact even after leaving the theater I was not certain who any of these characters were outside of Garwin. I was surprised if I met that that was actually a portrayal of King Arthur. Yeah, where is Lancelot? Is that Merlin? These are questions you're meant to have. According to that A24 video, that is Merlin. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do any magic in this, but he's standing there in the background. Yeah. Well, maybe this movie doesn't want to tell us who any of the characters are, but Stuart, tell us who these characters are. Give us a plot. 
All right. I thought I would honor the original source material. I'm, I'm not much of a poet, but I did try to put it into verse. So, <laughs> wow. Here, let's go. Gather round listeners. I have a tale to tell about an inexperienced knight played by Dev Patel, who sits at King Arthur's round table, green with envy, because all the other members have stories aplenty about how they slew this dragon or conquered that world. And all Garwin can brag about is betting a peasant girl. Opportunity comes knocking when on Christmas Day, a jolly green giant arrives with a strange game to play. Strike him right now in any manner you wish. Garwin lobs off his head with a dramatic squish. But the green knight survives because he's made of moss and vines, and he will return the favor when Garwin finds him in one year's time. For three seasons, Garwin is honored with applause, drinks, puppet shows. But there's real reluctance on his part when it's finally time to go. His sorceress mother makes a magic green sash that promises to protect him from the fatal axe slash. And his peasant girl Essel offers a small token as well. Think of his lady-in-waiting when Garwin hears a jingle bell. Garwin sets out to face the green knight and prove his honor though secretly he frets that this quest is for goners. Along the way he meets robbers, ghosts, giants, a fox predicting doom, though he can't be sure if they're not all side effects of eating wild mushrooms. Garwin even flirts with a lady who looks identical to Essel. She makes him a new sash and plays with his vessel. He leaves this mansion quickly in case the husband has a qualm and can't shake the feeling he just got a handjob from his mom. Garwin reaches the Green Chapel and kneels before the knight, but he can't bring himself to complete the game and leaves in fright. Camelot welcomes Garwin back as a hero and Arthur makes him a king. Garwin buys his son off Essel and then coldly ends their fling. He marries a proper lady and makes more bad calculations. His son is killed in battle because he invaded other nations. The people turn on their new king and riots make Garwin realize... There is no way for him to keep his head and live an honorable life. So he removes his protective sash and offers himself again, and the Green Knight smiles and raises his axe and brings about the end. I feel like someone needs to be playing the lute during that. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I, I, I thought about singing it. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah, you know, it's a rush job, but you know... <laughs> High school English class. This is where it gets you. <laughs> not exactly classic. And it should be said, the poem is not in rhyming verse. There's only certain parts that rhyme. It's actually, it's much more of what you would just call a ballad. And you're right. I think it would be a musical that you would perform for royalty to entertain them all day while they had nine courses of, you know, mutton. Well, I think you hit upon something in your description there that I think pretty much encapsulates where audiences are going to fall on what their expectations of this movie is. And I, for one, did not think that I would be encountering jizz on screen in a summer <laughs> blockbuster release. Yeah, yeah, in close-up. Extreme. <laughs> and again, I, I'm only half kidding. So much of this, there's a Catholic Christian mission to this. And then there is like this witchcraft pagan element to this. And it really does feel like some of these things are being manipulated by his mother, who is a sorceress. We'll talk about who she might actually be from Arthurian myth. But I do think they're playing with the idea of Christian belief versus pagan belief. And so that can really make some of this stuff feel trippy. And did that really happen? How much of any of what we see is literally true? Hard to know. 
We start with a prologue, and it's sort of, it's hard to make out. I mean, not only because people have thick accents, and they do some things to distort the voice, but yeah, they're, they're speaking really fast. I tend to like to have closed captioning on. Not an option. Yeah, you need closed captioning here. It, it reminded me a lot of The Witch, another A24 film. <laughs> Yes, right. Very much like The Witch. Uh, difficult to understand, but I think what they're talking about in the beginning, what they actually say is we see Dev Patal sitting on the throne, and we're hearing about this glorious king, and then it does get said something, but this is not that king nor his son. This is a new tale, and we see the crown land on him, descending from heaven, setting his hair on fire. I think we're to think of this as someone that attempted to emulate Jesus attempted to live the Christian values, and failed, is damned. This is going to be a tragedy, which is not what the poem is. The poem very much validates Garwin as a great knight whose chivalry comes through in every test. Here, this is the opposite. Yeah, after you get this little prologue, we see Garwin. What's he up to? It looks like he's spending all night in a brothel when he's supposed to be at mass and he's just drinking and, and messing around. And yeah, he doesn't seem like that chivalrous knight that we'd typically read in our English lit class in high school. And this is where we really see David Lowry's gift for like visuals. Because again, we just saw Deb Patel with his head on fire. And then we cut to this strange shot that I'm like, I don't even know where to place this, where we're at a farm and some <laughs> guy is passed out among like ducks and goats and what have you. And in the background, there's a fire. I don't know if you noticed that, but like one yes. of the roof thatches is burning and we see this couple enter, get on a horse, brandish a sword and run. I think we see the people that set the fire. I think what they're telling us is those people just committed arson and are now running. We are in a land of some really bad characters. And then the camera continues to pull back through a window, and now we're in the bedroom where, yes, Garwin Depatal is sleeping. Was all of this a dream? Was this burning head imagery all a nightmare? He is woken up. I think it's significant that he is woken up with a bucket of water to put out those flames. His girlfriend, who appears to be a prostitute, Essel, is waking him up so they can go to church. Yeah, played by Alicia Vikander, who I've seen. I saw Tomb Raider. I saw Ex Machina. I did not recognize her here. Yeah, she's got a page boy haircut. And I don't know that anybody can keep their glamour. But she is, I mean, yes, she. there is something about her that is enchanting. And I do see, she's hard to see. It should be said, another choice that has been made with the visuals is everything seems to be lit by practical light, which is to say that candles in dark corners are the only illumination we're going to get. And so there is a lot of shadow, a lot of blackness. We're going to have these long tracking shots and characters are going to fall out of focus and go into black. And it just really creates the sensation that you are there in these medieval times living as they do. Yeah, I would say there's a rich color palette, but it's all drenched in shadow. Maybe because it is all natural light. Like there, there's some very colorful things and I, I think it looks great. But yes, it, it's a dark because of the lighting film, maybe dark because of the material as well. But again, th this it, it all took me back to The Witch. It, it felt like that vibe where, yeah, let's use natural light. Let's make things look like they did then. Let's make this, even though there's some part of this is rooted in history, there's also something mythical about it. Yeah, let's just focus in on that just because I had to look it up to be like, when was King Arthur alive? I know he was a fictional character, but what was that time? You're talking about 500 years beyond Christ in London. And so all of these people were trying to espouse the message of Jesus 
Jesus, but at the same time, they were going out and killing people. Like, they were doing it by the means of the sword. So there's a hypocrisy to all of these crusades. But we are to think of Arthur as a vessel for Christian ideology. And according to this movie, it appears that Camelot is starting to die. Like, it it really feels like this is... Normally, when you hear about Camelot, you think of, like... I don't know, I think of the musical. I think about, like, brightly lit sets and costumes and what have you. Here, it feels like a, an empire that is crumbling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, again, when you, we see that round table and it, it darkly lit and these knights don't look like great, you know, role models that we, we look up to as, you know, Christian integrity or however you want to define them. It, 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 again, it, it feels like a, a time that their time has passed. Yeah, and the exteriors of every place is, you know, I wouldn't say ruins, but not nearly mm. regal in the way you might think of Camelot from other tales. And even to speak to Stuart's point about the symbology and, you know, the duology of Christianity versus paganism, the choices that they make for the set design and the crowns that are worn are very, mm -hmm. very much seeped in Christian imagery. Oh, they look like halos, yeah. Yes. And yet, something I learned, thank you Wikipedia, Garwin's symbol is the pentagram, you know, which has obviously a real pagan, like, satanic, really, quality to it. And they, they'll talk in this movie about the five points, and he has five fingers, and five, that like, five is sort of this talismanic, number for him. And so he is, yes, working in service of a round table that espouses Christian values, but has a mother who clearly is into witchcraft. And they have changed the setup of the poem to show that she really is the one to summon the Green Knight. It's through her sorcery that we get this encounter. Yeah, my reading was like, oh, here's my wayward son spending time with peasant girls and brothels and drinking all night. You know, it's Christmas. You're supposed to be celebrating Christ. I didn't know we were going to get a Christmas movie in July here, mm. but here it is. But yeah, this feels like, okay, I'm going to send him on a journey. I'm going to conjure some magic to teach him a lesson and make him into that chivalrous knight that he should be. More than that, I agree with you. Some of it feels like I want my son to learn some values. But if we think of this character as Morgan Le Fay, and I, again, this is some of this is like pulling from deep, like high school English class. We studied Le Morte de Arthur and read Once and Future King, which I think I got the Cliff Notes version. I don't even think I read <laughs> the thing. But my memory is Morgan Le Fay was sort of the antagonist of Camelot and Arthur, that she was the half sister who didn't go with the Christian stuff, who was pagan and who was out to ruin him and reinstate her own. His name was, I think, Morgan. Mortimer. It was a different character. It, they've changed it that Garwin is her son, but she had a fake king that was going to replace the real king, and she was using black magic to pull that off. It's a coup, essentially. So this is a plot to also replace Arthur, you're saying? Yes. And you'll even see that as she and her little daughter, she has three daughters that are making a bonfire in this spiraled castle. She will have a skull and she pulls out a tooth. And it just made me think on second viewing, we see that King Arthur is suffering from a toothache and like mm -hmm. she's doing things to him. She's not just mm. helping the son. This Arthur appears to be dying. He's got a real sick pallor and we will see that as soon as this quest is over in a year's time, he will pass away. I also believe that it was on screen that she was manipulating Arthur into bringing Garwin to his side and having that conversation with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we find out that he's like never talked to his nephew. 
here. This is the first time. Is Garwin, is he a knight at this point? We see him knighted later, so I guess he's not really a knight. I just figured he would have gone on all these adventures, but it doesn't seem like that. He spends all his time, again, getting laid and, and drunk. From what the classic poem would tell you, he is a knight, but he hasn't done anything to earn that. He's the least experienced. And the way that this movie has sort of recalibrated that, they've said that, well, he hasn't done anything to, to earn his knightdom yet. He's only here because his mom is the king's sister and kind of half-sister at that. They've made a choice to have racial difference be a part of the casting. Deb Patel is an Indian actor, and all of the other knights of the round table are Caucasian. And so maybe that's even a part of the subtext about why we haven't really brought you into the fold, why you are sort of this outsider. Yeah, I kept waiting for that to become more than subtext. I, I thought that'd be addressed at some point because, yeah, he is the only non-Caucasian knight here that we're going to see. Like, everyone else is white. He is Indian. But it that's never addressed on the surface, at least. I don't believe that Arthur ever got to India. But we do know <laughs> that the British Empire, of course, colonialized India and and took from its culture. So it feels like like all of that is a way of commenting on the fact that this is all part of of conquest and it was kind of by accident that he ended up with this family member here. And you're right. I do think that it is witchcraft that is making Arthur even feel guilty into being like, okay, I need to know you now. We need to find a quest for you. We need you to to become a part of this because you, unlike everyone else here, are my blood. And that means that basically he's next in line to the throne. And, and I think we could definitely say Garwin's mother summoned the Green Knight. Like, we see her writing a letter, sealing it with wax, and the Green Knight, when he does finally appear, is going to show that same letter. Oh, yeah, that guy in my audience, the talkative one, he was like, <laughs> she did that! That was her! Like, he like, like standing up and pointing a finger at the screen, he was, like, mad about that. She did that! And, of course, this is new for... Maybe he was a fan of the poem, or knew the classic legend. This is all changes. Like, that has not been in any previous version version that the idea that Morgan Le Fay or Garwin's mother calculated to bring this on them. In fact, the original idea was that this Green Knight is basically a henchman of the earth and paganism and all that is natural and untamed. And he's been watching Arthur conquer the world and been kind of pissed that they think that they're so great. Oh, you think you can just master me? Well, I'm going to throw down this challenge to get back at you. That was how it originally played. In that A24, everything you need to know about the Green Knight before you see it, they, they say, what does the Green Knight represent? Because we know the Black Knight. We know the White Knight. Like, feel like we're going to Power Rangers territory almost. We're going to get the Blue and the Red Knight too? We do get a Red Knight in that Sean Connery one. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they say the Green Knight represents nature, the unknown, and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an allegory here for, I mean, even though it would be Bronze Age era you know, just industrialization taking over nature. Yeah, I definitely thought, like, that was going to be a main focus because, you know, the Green Knight, he looks like a tree when he shows up. Yes. We're going to see Garwin, like, walking through a deforested area. I mean, we saw, I mean, if you saw that movie Noah by Aronofsky, like, that definitely had, you know, it, it was a biblical story, but it's all about environmentalism. Sort of biblical. They took a lot of liberty. <laughs> Real liberties. More than they take liberties with this poem in that <laughs> Noah movie. I don't know about that movie, but yes, I I agree that I think it will be clear to most people that this is Groot, that he, even when he walks, <laughs> it looks like Groot. <laughs> he looks like Groot. And when he walks, it sounds like trees tipping over. It's like this. 
cracking of a, of timber, you know, just there's everything about him says, I am not flesh and blood. I am a tree. And so when he offers this challenge of like, let's play a Christmas game where you strike a blow against me, then I get to strike a blow against you in a year's time. We know he's got an advantage because, you know, trees grow back, right? You cut it down to a stump, but it will return. Now in the movie, this challenge doesn't make much sense. And going back and trying to figure out in the poem if it's the same challenge, it is, it doesn't make much sense there. But a bigger picture, you know, one head for one head, even though nature will eventually reclaim everything, is kind of the overall message of this challenge. If we're thinking about trading one beheading for the life of one of King Arthur's men, it really doesn't amount to much. But if you look at it from... 30,000 feet, I think what they're trying to say, the original author of this poem, is that, yes, human expansion into the wilderness and taking over the land will eventually be stopped by Mother Nature. Right. Yeah, well, I definitely think those become the major themes as we go through. But just to talk about what the original poem might be getting at, the original challenge was different. I do feel like the Green Knight made very explicit, chop off my head, and then I get to do the same to you. And everyone else was like, well, that's absurd. Of course, if we chop off your head, you won't be able to get back at us. And so it made it very easy for Garwin to accept that challenge. Here, if we think of it in terms of this sorceress made him, I think he's an assassin meant to to kill Arthur. Like, she thinks this is the way to remove the king. And we even see Arthur say, I, I would love to jump over this table and get you, but I'm too sick to do that. But there's a part of him that feels baited into wanting this fight. He even turns to the character that's Merlin, and they have this exchange. The screen goes red and what have you. And you can sense that this would be for the king to accept this challenge. Instead, it, it's Garwin. You know, Garwin had been shamed into saying, you're surrounded by legends. You need to do something legendary. Here's a good opportunity. In my reading was this Green Knight, it was there to teach you a moral, teach you a lesson. Justin, we just recently saw Snake. Guys, I was thinking of that first challenge where you just got to say, please, can I have your cup? You don't have to fight the person. And when you see this Green Knight, and maybe I missed something because I only saw this once. I didn't have subtitles, but he said something to the effect like, you know, I'll return whatever you give me, whether it's a scratch or, or cut on the throat. So I, I thought the whole lesson was is like, don't cut off his head, like just just lightly attack him. And in a year, he'll just lightly attack you back. But yeah, we'll see him present his head. You know, he'll kneel down and, and bow his head. So his neck's exposed. So you could take that giant axe and and lop off his head. Yeah, that is a big change, Jacob. You absolutely hit on something crucial here. In any other version, it would be understood that the Green Knight was asking for his head to be cut off. Here, I agree. It was hard to know exactly what he said, but what I thought I heard was that, like, you land a blow on me. That could be a peck on the cheek. You could kiss me, or you could <laughs> put a knife to my throat. Whatever you feel like I deserve. And it's Christmas time. He is Jesus, right? Like, this is, like, they, he says that we'll, they'll meet again. It's a game, and we'll part in trust and friendship when we see each other, and I get to give the same blow to you. So it wasn't like Garwin had to grab Excalibur and chop off the head. He did that because he was ambitious. Because he's insecure about not being a knight, because he so badly wants to be as cool as everyone else in the room, he thinks the way to do that is to kill. Yeah, it 
one of my readings of this film, it made for modern audiences, it's about, you know, you just can't take shortcuts to get ahead in life. Like, and that's definitely, I think, Garwin's frame of mind here is like, oh, yeah, I'll just lop off his head. He'll die. I'll be this great hero because everyone seems pretty afraid of this Green Knight. Like, this was a quick way to have a story to tell. Yeah, it's a Christmas story. I even think that that was the titling, the Christmas game here. And you're getting the blood that's red mixed with the moss that's growing on the floor and those Christmas colors of red and green. I mean, the Green Knight has a bow of holly when he walks in. I associate that with Christmas, yeah. Yeah, that color scheme will follow this movie throughout and it will even be dissected by a character later as to what red and green really mean here. But yes, it's it was a challenge that didn't have to go this way. Garwin made it about chopping off heads and now he's got a year before this tree is going to like do that to him it also represents that mixture again of christianity and paganism and how the two have kind of intertwined and become modern day christianity because paganism is all about the seasons and the earth and the land and the symbology of cutting off this green knight's head you know that represents nature is the ending of a year you know, and that's also important that we're taking place here at Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's. So that that's all very symbolic of those two belief systems. Yeah. And the next segment is a too quick year. We see how quickly, I don't think that, you know, like normally you would think the challenge that's made is that you have to come find me. And that Green Knight is going to ride out of there like the Headless Horseman cackling and saying, I'm going to be at this Green Chapel. I'm not going to give you any directions. You would think that you'd get on that right away. It's just six days to the north. That's all the direction you need. Yeah, Garwin is like, you know what? I'm going to enjoy my celebrity. I'm going to dine out on this. I'm going to drink a lot. I'm going to pretend it was a game. He gets his own puppet show. Yeah, like I'm now revered. All of these people come and hear my story and I'm a hero and people think I'm a celebrity. And so maybe I don't have to fulfill that promise. Maybe I can just live like this forever. But even that puppet show knows he's going to lose his head. Yeah, if he goes. But here's the thing. It's not like the Green Knight is going to come back and do that to him. Only if he goes on this quest and goes to the Green Chapel will that fate befall him. So problem solved, right? I just don't go to the Green Chapel. The only hiccup to this is that King Arthur is like, yeah, you know, my knights, they go on quests. They have to do this. You've accepted this challenge. Chivalry, honor, this is what the job is. You can't just not do your duty. You've made this promise. And so everyone would expect you to be brave and go face this green knight again. And it does feel like Essel, his girlfriend, is the only one that doesn't want him to go. She's like, you know... What's wrong with just being good? Why do you have to be great? Which, fair enough point. Like, they often say, you know, great is the enemy of the good. Like, when, when you go for those utopian ideals, you often pass up a lot of opportunities just to be a good person. Well, great in this world means, like, I'm going to be at the round table, like, money, right? I'm going to get the throne. I'm going to get the crown. Like, great means I get power. Why do you have to be ambitious? Why can't you just love a, a, a modest peasant? prostitute girl why do you have to ha have a queen and run an empire it's this point of the tale that's being laid out in front of us that i think is almost incumbent upon the viewer to bring in some knowledge with them yes 
or become lost. And this is where, after the movie, I did a little research and found out, you know, that this scene really lays out where this movie and journey is going to take us, talking about those five points again, without force-feeding them to us as an audience. If you are somebody steeped in Arthurian legend, this is probably getting you excited, knowing, okay, this journey we're about to go on is going to touch on the five virtues of becoming a knight. You know, the things that knights hold dear to them. Yeah, I didn't know about the five virtues. I read about them after I saw this. But, you know, we'll get some title screens like where it gives you a hint of like what's supposed to go on in the scene or, or what Derwin's supposed to do. But again, I feel like I understand what the journey is about. Like it's about self-discovery. Like that's what I'm expecting. He's going to learn something about himself. I don't necessarily know about the five virtues, but I'm not totally lost. Like I feel lost because I do feel like I'm in a foreign world, which which I think is a good thing. I love that there's this weird combination of Christianity and paganism. I'm like, again, King Arthur, not a real dude, but I feel like this is really tapping into those times. Like, it, it would just feel so foreign and different to us. I think where you want to do the research is with Morgan Le Fay. Again, my only reference was the Doctor Strange TV movie. She was the <laughs> enemy in that. I don't think many people have that as a reference either. No, I would hope not. But it was <laughs> I did enjoy that. And it was the woman that would go on to be in Arrested Development. Uh, that yes. was the Morgan Rillefay. <laughs> so you've seen her before. At any rate, my point is to understand that Arthur had enemies within. That his half-sister was actually actively working to undo his legacy and to put her own power. That she, you know, women couldn't sit on the throne just by the sexism of the time. But she could have a son that she created through magic that could sit on that throne and thus she could rule and so i do feel like you need to have that perspective to truly understand why she is like again i don't think she wanted her son to go on this journey i think the original plan was green knight will challenge arthur and arthur will get his head chopped off in a year and now it is well my son's got to go I'm going to give him a green sash with some wood and spells carved into it, and that will protect him. No matter what blow he sustains, the green sash, my magic will make sure that he doesn't die. It's plan B. There's a lot of long shots of her carving runes into stones and, yeah, making that bell. Like, again, David Lowry, like we talked about, six minutes of eating pie in a ghost story. Like, get ready for just some long, long shots, which to me, it builds atmosphere. I, I think he's able to balance that right with the score and everything. Like, there's a lot of atmosphere. I feel like maybe almost all of this is atmosphere. That That is his greatest strength. Long shots and extreme close-ups to really get in on the emotion of each character. It's the breaking point, right? It's either the part that draws you in or makes you go, how much more of this? Like, I think that it's going to be a real test of character. This is where you get challenged <laughs> as to whether you're patient or not and whether you want to go along with an indulgent art movie. I, you're not wrong for not wanting to. I could feel some in the audience really getting restless when he heads out on this journey and it doesn't feel any more exciting than the first 35 minutes we went through. Oh, you talked earlier about timing you know, a scene in another movie. How long was his original journey down that lonesome road with kids following him <laughs> on the horse? I mean, that felt like an eternity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there are no six-minute shots, but there are many, many shots that exceed the length uh, of time in which we're gathering information. So, which is to say that there's no real point to them other than to establish mood. And, and I do feel like, again, it's about deconstructing the myths we have about King Arthur and his knights. Like, again, this very long shot of Gerwin walking through fields, seeing things get deforested. Nothing's glamorous. And, like, when I think about King Arthur, that's glamorous. Like, they're going going on these quests and, and doing great good here. Like he gets lost at a fork in the road. He doesn't know which way to go. Like the worst night ever fork in the road. No, it's a, it's a cross in the road. Look at almost True. every shot in this movie. You have the visual representation of Jesus and the cross and the Christianity that's supposed to be the values that are the five virtues of being a knight. The, the foundational principles where they get all of that comes from the story of Jesus and the Bible. And yet, you know, is that character really following that? That's really the question to ask. He'll pass a skeleton in a cage. It's dangling from a crucifix thing. They'll go to a battlefield where there's like one little cross stuck there and he'll wonder why the others aren't buried. Like, yeah, it's it's a very somber looking world. I agree. Camelot looks like a slum. It's nothing like we thought it would be. There's nothing glorious about this world. And yeah, we have a character whose moral struggle is how do you be a Christian in a world so dark and dank? Right. Which is a visual direction that I absolutely love that they went this way because when you do think about these fables and fairy tales in your head, it's it's easy to pretend in your own mind that, yes, I would be a generous, pious, honorable man because everything is trimmed in gold and in bright, shiny colors. But it's, no, in, in a dark world, these virtues become harder to live up to. Yeah, for sure. And so we get a, a few tests here, all created for this movie. None of it is anything more than passing mentions in the poem. It's really not about what he experiences along the way. But because it's a movie and we need to fill up the next 40 minutes, he's going to run into things, starting with this scavenger. Barry Keegan is uh, got the strangest, scariest face in movies these days. Yeah, go watch The Killing of a Sacred Deer. He's great in that. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's the psychopathic kid in that and just so terrifying. He also was like the kid that bled out in Dunkirk that was on the boat. That was, you know, he was actually a good character, but still odd. And I guess he will be one of the Eternals. Yeah, this definitely feels like a test here. Like the scavenger, he's going to give Garwin, hey, you, you got to go in this direction. Now pay me up. And Garwin does not want to pay him, does not want to help him out for giving him directions on where to go. And yet I feel like even if he had been generous, he probably still was walking into a trap <laughs> but yes he definitely this kid will definitely say not enough twatting enough when he gets thrown this little coin here like it's first of all he was going to ride away without anything other than saying thank you and then he's guilted into saying you know you could give this kid who has no one like he's standing on a battlefield where his brothers and everyone else has been slaughtered and he's got no prospects you could help him out you could give him a ride there's a lot of kindness that you could show. It's the name of this segment, a kindness. 
And all he does is flip him what looks like a very small token. Right, which is, you know, something most people would do. But once again, since we're re-examining some of these Christian values, Jesus would give him the clothes off of his back. It would be, you know, the baseline there. Yeah, Garwin's really reluctant to just give him that coin, too. And so when the scavenger shows up with two other people, again, to me, it's about deconstructing the myth. Garwin, he, he's a great knight. He's part of the round table. No, he, he's going to get punked here. Like, he, he gets taken out very He's, he even denies that he's a knighted. And again, maybe it's because he hasn't had his grand adventure yet. He hasn't really been knighted. But I always feel like Garwin is not being honest with people around him, whether it's about his girlfriend, whether it's about who he really is. And we see that right here where he's trying to just pass himself off as a regular guy. To be fair, he introduces himself as just a traveler friend. And it was Keegan that was like, hey, you look like a knight and, and keeps insisting that he's a knight. But th- it is Garwin's vanity that is like, I want to present myself as something more than what I am. I want to look like a knight. I want to ride and and have the outfit and and give that regal presentation. But you're right. If you get me in a fight, I lose quickly and get scared and and say, you know, sorry, please, 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 and not do anything to, to fight back. Does he die here? Do these scavengers kill him? You know, this is, again, part of the way that this movie has been constructed that will severely test slash irritate a segment of the audience is we can't be sure what we're experiencing is even really happening or how much of it is literally true. We will see that, yes, the scavenger has two friends. They jump this wannabe knight. They take his axe. They take his horse. They leave his sword. And he will use that to cut himself free of his bonds. Or maybe we have this hallucination. The way I take it is Garwin is always thinking about death. And so for him, he's thinking about what it would be to just die here. We have this very long 360 degree pan in which we survey the forest and see all the nature and critters. And when we pan back to him, he is a skeleton being eaten by beetles and bugs. Yeah, I did wonder, again, because kind of my reading was that his mom was setting him on this quest to make him a better person, that he would not be allowed to die until he faced the Green Knight. Like He's got the sash. Yeah, the sash would protect him. Oh, that's true. Yes, that sash is going to protect him. So, yeah, I, I did wonder. Maybe they did kill him, but he can't die at this point. That's a point of confusion for me a little bit, because they did take the sash from him in this robbery. Oh, that's true. They do take it from him now. Yes, you're right. Keegan did slash it off. And so he isn't protected by that. So maybe, yes, if this is a multiverse, one (laughs) pathway on that is that this man cowardly just dies here and does nothing to try and free himself. Another version is that he finds his sword, cuts his own flesh, trying to cut his bonds free and then is now walking for the next leg when he meets the St. Winifred Ghost, which is, I guess, an actual Catholic uh, saint. Like, if you look up their canon of saints, St. Winifred was a real person, a 14-year-old girl who refused the sexual advances of some man, and he lobbed off her head. It rolled into a spring, and now that spring is a place that you can go as a tourist, and apparently the waters heal you. It will heal you of all physical and mental ailments. Is there skull still in there? Can we dive in there and still look for it? <laughs> I, I don't think they're going to let you do that. I had, I did go and watch like a travelogue, like what does it look like? And it's mostly like sticking your feet in like a little kiddie pool. <laughs> That's what it kind of comes off as. It should be said, we've, we've seen this actress who plays Winifred. We, we talked about her in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. She led this Flag Smashers. Oh yeah, Erin Kellyman. She was like Carly, I think. Such a 
strange name yes. for a villain. <laughs> and Carly, the super bad villain. Yeah, she's popping up in all kinds of big properties. She was also in Solo, a Star Wars story, as one of the, the main villains that was chasing him around. Yeah. So, is she a villain here? She's a ghost. It definitely comes off as a threat. We will see Garwin slip into her cabin, go upstairs, take a nap, and he is woken by this 14-year-old girl who claims she doesn't have a head. And is floating around. Yeah, when she does that move where it seems like she's floating towards him and then he goes out to touch her and she's like, don't touch me. Like, I'm like, okay, she's a ghost. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there's also another meaning to that. A knight should know better than to touch me like that is, again, that Christian value of don't take a woman without being given permission and you know like the value of his knightdom is at stake here every challenge is a test of whether he deserves to to be called a knight yeah he fails every time like she's like you got to go get my head and he's like well what, what, what will i get for it like no that's not chivalry yes what's in it for me <laughs> yeah why would you even ask me that? that that is a moment that really like yeah i can't believe that you would like someone just said someone cut off my head and it's in the spring and your first question is i can get it but for how much that's pretty tacky so again even though i don't know what the five virtues are with that star and everything like i'm getting it there's little lessons going on here as we go from place to place and that color theory is popping up too he'll jump in the water it's green and then he sees the skull and it turns red and christmas colors but what does it all mean (laughs) we're still waiting for those answers but he will produce the skull and he's been followed around by a fox too well this will be the second encounter where a fox is watching him as he brings it back upstairs we'll follow him as he goes upstairs and puts the head back on the headless skeleton that's now laying in the bed i guess that skeleton wasn't there when he climbed into the bed that'd be very weird Mm, or maybe (laughs) it was Uh, who knows (laughs) and also just another note towards the art direction though like as soon as he puts that skeleton back in place the sun begins to rise. So like every scene here, everything on screen feels very deliberate. Well, here's a character that lost her head and is, you know, a martyr. But now again, if you believe the legend, her spring brings healing and health and all of that. And it, and here's someone that's more virtuous than this knight. Like, You should accept your destiny that you're not going to live through this because it'll mean that your name is honorable. And honor is worth more than whatever you material things you acquire in your life. Your life is going to be short. And in the end, no matter what you do, you're going to lose your head. So why not be a martyr? Why not be someone that exists for the right cause? That's certainly what Winifred seems to represent to me. Not to mention... In Arthurian legend, I don't, again, this is old high school English class, but there was a lady (laughs) in the lake, right? That gave Arthur. Yeah, that's the one that gave Excalibur. Yeah, like, so, like, this kind of character can sometimes be the thing that makes you the great legend that you become. And here she's highlighting that Garwin ain't it. And he's even talking about going home. He probably would have, like, turned around and gone home now that he doesn't have a horse or a weapon or anything, except that green axe is now there. Yeah, she kind of is like the lady in the lake, that he does get a weapon, he does get rewarded, I guess, for returning that head. Now the axe is there that those scavengers took previously. Or did the scavenger come and cut her head off with that axe and then leave it there? I mean, not sure. You, You think she recently died? 
I don't know. No, I mean, I know the, the legend is such that, no, that wouldn't be the case. But I think it could be a reading that that guy that robbed the knight then went and found this girl and tried to rape her and decapitated her. I mean, it could be. But I don't know why he'd leave the axe. And I don't know where he is now. Yeah, they are never to be seen again. Well, no, actually, we do see him on the return voyage, but more on that later. Now we have the interlude. What would normally be... If this were Peter Jackson making this movie, entire movies would be devoted to talking foxes and <laughs> yes. giants like walking by mountains. <laughs> this is what I thought the movie was going to be. I, I'm like, oh, I got to get some acid before I go see this and drop it and, and just have a great <laughs> hallucinatory experience. Uh, it's about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, this is this is one of those movies that you better be glad that you went in sober as possible because <laughs> mm. i don't know it might be a real trip if you're not <laughs> yeah or you you get some mushrooms yeah give me some of those mushrooms that garwin finds <laughs> yeah is it all the mushrooms i don't know i i definitely feel like the movie is playing looser and looser rather than you 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 feel like you're getting a better handle on what's happening things are getting stranger you're not trusting what your eyes are sh are showing you anymore like is that a tree or is that at the Green Knight following him. Is his hand riding off? Yeah, he's turning into the Green Knight, isn't he? I thought it, that was moss growing on his hand. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he definitely thinks about, later he'll talk about green being the color of rot, that, you know, like it's the moss that grows on your tombstone. It is the earth reclaiming your flesh. And so for him, what's so scary about the Green Knight is he's kind of like the Grim Reaper. Like when he's coming for you, no matter what you try to do, you're dead. Like that's ultimately, how do you fight that kind of enemy. But this is where we also see Garwin accept, finally, the fox into friendship because he, he takes refuge in, in kind of an alcove cave during a rainy night and the fox is standing at the, the entrance kind of looking longingly at him. Yeah, he's throwing rocks at it at first, but then he finally lets it in. Yes. What do we think this is? When it talks later, I feel like it speaks in his mother's voice. So I feel like it's her familiar, like keeping tabs on him, making sure, you know, like I'm going to get a little icky here. I feel like there's an incestuous quality and like the fox wants to curl up with him and all just sort of plays into that. Yeah, the fact that you said there's a reading where the mother sent the Green Knight to get Arthur and not her son, we'll see towards the end, the fox will talk and tell him, hey, you don't need to do this go away just go so maybe that is the mother you know saying I, I don't want you to die as my son for this this was meant for someone else yeah that's the way I take it it's also going to be the one to scare off the giants like he's going to see a giant passing by these naked bald people and <laughs> be like hey can I hitch a ride on your shoulder yeah being that lazy unchivalrous knight <laughs> I just want the shortcut <laughs> going back to Lord of the Rings get me the eagles to fly me to Mordor it reaches out for him I don't think it's going to give him a ride I think he's going to like crush him or, or flick him like a bug and it's the fox that gets in the middle and and starts howling so again i think of this fox as on one hand a friend but on the other hand the controlling influence of his diabolical mother i just have to say one of the coolest on-screen depiction of giants i think i've ever seen in a fantasy setting just the their voices you know seemed actually the way a voice might sound in a human that had grown to that size. And, and obviously there's CGI and effects going on, but these look like real people playing the giants. There's actual like physics to them. And I want to compliment this film. This is, you know, not a lot of money, but did they dress up a dude as Groot, like with good makeup and have him ride an actual horse into a building? Yes. Like you could have CGI'd all that. It'd probably been way easier, but I, I really appreciate the physicality of this, that it, it's a fantasy 
world, but it feels real. This movie lives or dies by how much you can buy into, yeah, the the technical elements. And you're right. This isn't going to be the biggest budget fantasy movie you've ever seen before. Again, I think that it helps that this movie's so dark. There's a lot of times that you can hide some of these effects. But I also just think that the technicians have have done a lot with a little money and that we've really gotten this sort of, yeah, Grimm's Brothers kind of fairy tale to it all. It really feels like, uh, again, horror movie is my reference, although I, it would be wrong to call this a, a movie that would scare you. It's more just grim than it is terrifying. Agreed. It's worth mentioning that the special effects were done by Weta Workshop. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That's why they look so good. <laughs> and why you might think that Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, Peter <laughs> Jackson. No, no, no. I'm telling you, don't touch it. If that's what you want, go watch Fellowship of the Rings again. Yes, they were still restricted by a lower budget, but you can still see that, you know, the, the team at Weta was into this story and put their hearts into it. Yeah, you're right. That must have helped. They probably did throw in some freebies. It, it was a personal project to bring this story that had been so inspirational to Tolkien to life. But none of it, again, I want to stress, if you had read the poem, you would have seen this challenge by this green knight. You would have had the character, like, spend maybe a few stanzas talking about what he was going to do next. And then he would be at this house. Like, literally, we just, like, talk about him questing for a couplet, and then he is suddenly at this mansion where a lord and a lady are so happy to see him. And this definitely feels like it's not real. Like, as soon as I see that blindfolded mother, like, sitting at that dinner table as he goes into this house, I'm like, okay, that's, like, his mom who is blindfolded. Like, this has got to be a projection of her. Right. Well, we're not even sure if they know that she's there, right? Because they're having breakfast. Yeah, they never dress her. They never <laughs> feed her or talk to her. She's just this blindfolded spirit that's sitting, hovering over it all. Again, it makes me think that the mother is having undue influence on what this Garwin is experiencing here. This is basically the moment where he's told, you can chill out. The Green Chapel is literally like a couple hours away up the river. You can hang out here. It's December 21st. You got until Christmas. Hang out with us and do whatever feels fun. It's a different kind of moral test. And in the poem, this was a character that refused the sexual advances of the lady. Though he was taking kisses, there was a lot more male-on-male kissing in that poem. Well, no, I mean, what happened was, it's another game. The lord of the house says, hey, I'm going to go out and hunt for you, and you can have whatever I bring back. And whatever you experience, you have to give to me when I return. So I guess it's good that, you know, he didn't have like really intense (laughs) sex or something like that, or it would have turned into a very awkward like show and tell. But yes, in the in the poem, he has to kiss the Lord as a way of telling him, I kissed your wife. And the Lord just kind of laughs it off. To him, that was just amusing. Like, oh, that's all you did? Okay, then you're still a good knight. Here, mm, it plays different. Yeah, here, it should be said the lady, as she goes by, is played by Vikander again. I did not recognize her. I didn't notice she showed up twice in this film. Oh, really? Oh, okay. That's important to get. Yeah, no, once I saw the credits, I'm like, oh, she was playing both. Okay, I, it makes more sense now. Yeah. They linger on that. They really want you to get that. She's got some crazy, like, Padme Amidala hairdos, as opposed to that page boy haircut. (laughs) She's a lady, and that's the point, is that in the early scenes, the prostitute Essel had been like, what if you make me your wife? What if you essentially 
give me the gift of being respectable, here it is. This is what she would look like, you know, like suddenly she's well read and she has like a, a movie camera or something that she uses to make paintings. And well, that was I know they had that in Renaissance time where you would project someone through a little pinhole and do it upside down. And then the painters would have like this glow in the dark type, you know, it's probably full of lead and, and stuff that killed them very early at very early age. But like, yeah, they would kind of do their sketch to get the pose and everything. I don't know if they had that 500 AD. Like this feels like it's more of a photograph. Like she just exposes this paint and his image is on it. It feels like magic. It feels like everything that's happening here is magic. And in fact, she's going to replace the sash that was taken that's magical. He now has a magical talisman to protect him when he goes to the chapel. She, the what's uncomfortable is I have the feeling that this is the mother working through his image of his lady, you know, Essel, I'm going to take what I know that you're in love with and I'm going to put that on and then I'm going to get you, you know, prepared for what you're about to do and give you a hand job, which, oof. <laughs> yeah, that, you got that belt all messy. Mm, he sure did. Yeah, I get a little into Oedipus here. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, this this feels like, again, where Garwin, he's not always truthful. He's not always standing up for things the way he should. We we see that the lady takes that little bell that Essel gave him at the beginning to remember her by. She just takes that and he just kind of lets her. Yes. Yeah, we're stripping you of all of that ambition. Again, if this is the mom, I don't want you marrying no prostitute and making her <laughs> respectable. I want you to marry a respectable lady and sit on the throne that Arthur is on currently. That's what you need to be thinking about. So let's just take this jingle bell away. Yeah, there, there's got to be nothing worse post-ejaculation than turning around and seeing an old woman blindfolded just standing there. Like, <laughs> that was disturbing. Well, at least she's blindfolded, but I agree. Uncomfortable. I don't think she's really blind, though. <laughs> she seemed to know exactly what was going on. Yeah. And yeah, the, the Lord is like, yeah, has caught the fox, has killed a boar, and is, it, it plays differently here. He takes the kiss from Garwin, and I think it's more just to create a weird moment. Like, I don't feel like it's him laughing off the idea that you didn't do anything much with my wife, because, of course, he did go much further with his wife. Well, I think it, it just squares that circle, because in all of these tests, Garwin has failed. I mean, he's mm -hmm. done the right thing, but he hasn't done it willingly. So the taking of the kiss is saying, yes, this bargain is complete, but it wasn't of your own doing. Yeah, you were never going to tell me about what transpired in that bed. And, and I know, according to that poem, it's a big deal that he never revealed that green sash that she gave him because he was supposed to give the Lord anything that he received in that house. He's not going to do that. But again, I take this all as a test because the Lord even says, hey, after you go to the green chapel and return, we're not going to be here. To me, this is all magic. This place does not really exist. And in the poem, it should be said, the Lord is the green knight. He will reveal him himself to be one in the same. I don't think that you get that sense in no. this movie. It's curious though, when we had that Winifred stop, you know, when he was there with the ghost, she made the passing comment that Garwin does know who the Green Knight is. And I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts on that? When we actually get to the Green Chapel, he, he spends a lot of time studying him in the morning light, in the nighttime. I feel like it's Jesus. I feel like in that dark, he kind of looks like Jesus Christ. Yeah, with the crown of thorns, because, yeah, he's kind of got these horns or something. It gets a similar vibe. Yeah, I think that's what they're getting at. 
what's taunting you are these values that you're you're not embracing. Like that is what's oppressing you is that you're not living up to the Christian ideal. Well, and I also think once again, I've said it before, but I think it's also a messaging of that mixture of Christianity taking over pagan rituals and co-mingling to become what is now Christianity. You're right, because a lot of things that we associate, even Christmas time, like Jesus is not supposed to have been born in December. They did that because of the seasons and, and what have you. So yes, there was a lot of adoption of pagan rituals in order to get a lot of people on board with Christianity. There is a pagan figure called the Green Man that apparently whoever wrote this poem was really inspired by. That must be what he was thinking about when he thought about the Green Knight, was this pagan man made out of plants and, and represented the earth, was already a popular notion about creation. And so here in the normal, if this had been a faithful adaptation, this would be Garwin submitting to the axe and having the Green Knight only give him a little tiny nick on the neck and say, we're done. I just was testing you. Yeah. And that poem, the sash does protect him. And so that blow does not cut off his head. Right. Although, again, I also feel like, I mean, this is my own interpretation. The way that it came off to me was that the Green Knight was never going to kill him if he, you know, showed the honor and the chivalry of doing what he said he was going to do. Yeah, the, the problem is two for flinching. You can't flinch. Yeah. <laughs> or else it's going to be even worse. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Even worse. I'm not sure how it could be any worse than getting your head cut off here. But that does not happen. The shocker is, and I was really like, wow, what are they doing now when we have Garwin running away from this moment and this test? And basically going to go back to Camelot and say, oh, yeah, I did it and and claim the throne. What a stunning reversal of what the meaning of the poem was. Oh, yeah, this is I'm watching this film and I'm taken in by the artistry and all that. And I'm like, OK, where is this going? He's just going to get his head chopped off. And then, oh, no, he's running away. And we're going to see how totally unshiverous Carwin is like as his future unfolds. Like I was fascinated by all of this stuff as he returns home. Oh, yeah, this plays without a word of dialogue, too, for the next 20 minutes. It, it's incredible filmmaking. Yeah, he's going to get Excalibur, which, you know, it helps if you know what that is, but it was Arthur's big deal. Like, that was his green sash, if you were. And Arthur, I think he's on his deathbed. It certainly looks like that. Yeah, he has to get knighted, but Arthur's just in bed. It's like not even in the main room or anything. Mm -hmm. He could barely stand to, to give him the blessing. And then, yeah, like, okay, I'm sitting on the throne. I need a lady. I need a sire. And so I'm just going to pay Essel for my son. Like I screwed her, but I'm, I'm not going to put that on the throne. This is gut wrenching because you, you go to this. She's giving birth. OK, he's going to have a son. She, he's still with her. Great. And then they just walk out and toss all this money on the bed covered in blood. And you're, I'm like, what What does that mean? And then they pan back and you just see Essel like crying, like groveling on the ground, trying to get her kid back. Like, ugh. This is awful. And I wondered, I don't know if you guys, it's a little moment, but like, you know, the baby comes out. It's not making a noise. I'm thinking stillborn. For a second there, it seems like yeah. it's so quiet that like, I'm not sure it's alive. And then Merlin touches it. It's almost like enchantment 
brings on the crying and, you know, or maybe it's just crying because Merlin's taking me away from my mom. I'm not sure how to read that. Yeah, I took it as some kind of spell or something. Like maybe this is, you know, to erase it, whatever memory it might have of its real mom. Who knows? Mm. For however you want to interpret it, this is definitely, it started as, oh, you're having my son to like, here are some coins. And I don't know if you remember that from the beginning, but she said, you know, why won't you make me a lady? And he's like, I'll give you some gold. I already have your gold. <laughs> she wrenched his heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I want I want you. I want to be with you. And here that's all she's gonna get is that gold. And he's walking away. He's essentially bought his child off of her and then married someone that looks a lot like Winifred. It's not the same actress. Uh, in the credits, she's credited as Helen. I know that the poem referenced Helen of Troy. Maybe it's meant to evoke that, but she is the trophy wife. This is uh, the kind of woman you marry when you're going to be king of England. Another person of royal lineage, which is what is ex expected in, you know, royal families. So an, almost an arranged marriage. Yeah, yeah. When they're like disrobing and, and having sex, like there's like 30 people in the room, like helping them take <laughs> off the clothes, which you would need because those clothes are really like ornamental. And she kind of looks like the chick from Midsummer with that flower dress or whatever. I don't know how you get in and out of that apparel. <laughs> But yeah, this vision starts to kind of kick into fast forward. We see Arthur traveling the battlefields with the tents and is being led to where his son is apparently laying dying from a battle wound. It's a real jump because we, first we have the son, like, it looks like he's playing a game. He's like moving little pieces on a map. And then you realize, oh, that's a war map. Like daddy is planning an invasion or something like that. Yeah. And he like accidentally knocks the pieces off or something. Yeah. Yes. And then like daddy like comes and swoops him up. And the next time we see this child who looked all of eight years old, he is now, yeah, got to be a 18, 20 year old man dying from wounds that he sustained trying to live up to the honor of this battlefield. And it gets back to the, again, to that question of honor. Like we have to blame Garwin for even getting into this fight. Yeah, we see this scene where Garwin's lying in bed. He's looking up. There's a lot of things that look like, I don't know if they're supposed to be foxes or some kind of animal with a human face. That's, I think, pretty common in medieval art. But we see, like, a crack and, like, something's thumping. I kept wondering, is that the Green Knight, like, slowly returning? Like, I still need that head. Like, at least it's that thought I think that's haunting Garwin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fox and, and all of that. And we had also had some dialogue when he was there at that, I'll call it the Haunted Mansion with the Lord and the Lady, that may have not been real. There was a lot of talk about how the world is chaotic and full of all these weird things where a hawk can kill a horse or what have you. <laughs> but a man creates walls and it protects him from that. So it does feel like Garwin is now living insulated. Like his whole world is this throne room and the walls are starting to crumble. We'll, we'll hear people pounding on doors and yeah, plaster falling down. And it feels like he's done a lot to try and keep out the battles he wasn't willing to fight. Yeah. And the, there also that conversation he had with the lady with a lot of color theory. She talks about red being like the color of lust and green is what comes after lust. And, and this definitely feels like, oh, you, you had your true love, mm -hmm. but you tossed her aside. And this is this like slow death that you're ne now experiencing. You know, you, you hear the term green with envy. Like he, he definitely he is not enjoying this life. I agree. That was a very 
very significant monologue that the lady gives him about the meaning of red and green and how he's, yeah, he's now entered the green phase and rot is coming for him. There is no way that he can get out of this. And yeah, even his own people are like slinging mud on him when he returns. And yeah, he basically ends up alone in a throne room, killing himself by removing the green sash and his head lops off. And it was all a dream. And I thought that was going to be the end of the film. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe this is the Green Knight showing him what his future could be. Yeah. Spoiler. This is a real last temptation of Christ moment. (laughs) Yeah. It could be that. Or we've just seen, again, divergent paths where, no, maybe he died in the tied up in the forest of what have you. That the point is, the, the, the messaging seems to be no matter what you do in life, in the end, it will end. Right. In the end, you lose your head. So how you conduct yourself should be more important important than what you accomplish like what you acquire as far as land and title and gold coins is not going to matter as much as honor chivalry those values i don't want to say this is a big christian tract of like how to live your life but again i looking for a modern reading of this because it's coming out in 2021 like influencers that's still a thing that blows my mind that we have a, a, <laughs> you, you can make a living as an influencer where you just post pictures of yourself and you get ad deals i guess like if you're popular enough like this feels like no maybe there's something more to life than just throwing up a picture of yourself half naked and then you get a million followers like <laughs> this, whether that's christianity or paganism or whatever that there's got to be something deeper than that. Right. And that's what I feel this is trying to get at. And Garwin could change that in this moment. He has the potential not to live this way. Right. I think there might be more to that in this movie itself, because the way I'm reading this vision is saying this journey you've taken, which is a test of these five virtues that would make a knight honorable or what we consider honorable under our code would lead you down this path to unhappiness to, you know, a a loveless marriage, losing your son, losing your true love. And all of this stuff is something that he failed every step of the way. So by not learning those lessons, it leaves him with one thing left, which is honor above all. I mean, who's to say that if he had been honorable, that he wouldn't have been a good king? You know, like the problem is that he came by it by bad means so that the, the seeds you plant when you acquire power you haven't earned, is that it all comes to rot. So I guess the question is then, does he give up his life? It almost plays as a joke at the very end. The Green Knight's like, okay, let's let, off with that head now. And then it cuts to the title of the film. Yeah, it's funny. We we had the title took the whole movie to reveal. We saw Sir Garwin dot 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 right at the beginning in lots of different flashy fonts. And we finally get the rest of the title right here as the last shot on a tree stump, fading out the Green Knight. What does it mean? I take it to mean that Garwin ultimately realizes, coward though he is, I'd rather die in this moment than to go through all of that pain that's heading towards me in the future. And I don't think he does it for honor. I don't think he does it for Christ. I think he does it just to get it through it and get over it. (laughs) But he takes off that green sash. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's something that he has to accept finally is is his death and whether this is the penalty for his sin or just a life lesson. Like, yeah, I like the reading that he lost his head in the end because that that's poetic. Like, that's what had to happen. It's what happened to everyone. Again, it's what happened to Winifred. It's what happens to all of us in the end, metaphorically, at least speaking, is that we're all going to die. And so, yeah, how you live 
matters or it should and yeah it's the tragedy of this character that they didn't have any values that they tried to live without them and here's how their story ended up if you believed in christ you would think that he was going on to a kingdom of ever after but i think this guy's probably burning in hell if there is a place like that (laughs) I mean, we saw him burning at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. Yes. The beginning told us this is someone that is not Christ. This is someone that will burn. But are we going to burn this film? Let's find out. Justin, Jacob, what did you guys think of The Green Knight? Justin. So, I mean, I think listening to our discussion, it, it's clear that this film is not for everyone. It's definitely not for general audiences. I mean, I said earlier that I had a few people walk out of the screening I was in, but... I think there's a lot of rewarding visual and sound design and even narrative tale here that will reward viewers who stay with this and maybe even reward you multiple times upon multiple viewings. Coming out of this movie, I was confused, but it definitely made me want to look (laughs) more into this lore to find out what might have gone past me. And I definitely want to see this again before I come down and say, I'm not sitting here going to say this is a masterpiece, but it is gorgeous. And it's very close to being an instant classic of film that doesn't necessarily need to be showing nationwide on big screens throughout the country. But having said that, I think this is a movie that's going to stay with me for a while. You know, I'll think about this movie going forward. And when it does hit home release, I'll probably sit down and watch it again because... If nothing else, it just raises questions. It makes you think about morality. It makes you think about the the main theme here, which is honor. And what does that mean? You know, we have religions that tell us what honor means. We have community that tells us what honor means. But ultimately, you have to find for yourself, inside of you, what honor means to you and to your life. And I think that's the tale here. I think that's the ultimate lesson being thrown at us on screen. And the horror. (laughs) and the horror of it. But yeah, I mean, if you're looking for an easy, breezy action adventure, this is not it. This movie plays more like a waking dream, you know, that you're dreaming and you wake up for a minute and you go back to sleep and you continue that dream. It feels like that process playing out five or six times over the course of two hours. And I think that's intentional. And since it is intentional, it's very well done because I came out of this movie almost feeling like I needed a nap because it is, (laughs) it is emotionally draining. It is. Yes, I'll side with that. Draining is a great word. (laughs) But I don't want to say boring because it is asking a lot of the viewer. So boring isn't the right word, but it is asking you to pack up your horse prior to coming into this event with some knowledge. You know, you, you need to do a little bit of your own work to help yourself find out what this movie is. But if I had one nitpick, it would be that Dev Patel's character... Dev Patel does a great job with this, and this might be the direction, or this just might be my misunderstanding of after only one viewing, but it feels like he's almost too much of an empty vessel. It feels at times that things are just happening to him and around him, and he has no control over it, and he's not really making his own decisions, nor is he learning much along his journey. Like I said, that may be intentional, and it's not big enough for me to sit here and not recommend it. So that long-winded speech of everything I just said ends at, I'm going to recommend this movie for people that are into Arthurian lore for sure, and, you know, into more art house movies. But if you're looking for action adventure, this is not for you. 
Jacob. Yeah, my go-to, here's my analogy. Like, I love Lord of the Rings. Those are great movies made by Peter Jackson. The Lord of the Rings one, not so much those Hobbit ones. But there is a scene, I believe it's in Return of the King, where they got to light the bonfires that go across the mountain landscape. And you just, these long panning shots, like as each fire gets lit to warn Rohan, hey, come help us. Like, I love that scene. It, it's just beautiful. Like, does it need to go on as long as it does? No, but it's just just some great scenery sweeping music like so if you really love that scene in lord of the rings like you might like this one (laughs) like this is capital a art like that that is what it seems like david lowry does for better or for worse maybe not so great if he's doing a disney movie like that pete's dragon film is very different than than most disney films you will see but you know what I'm the kind of person when I see someone go all in, like it actually starts to excite me. Like that scene in a ghost story, six minutes of eating a pie. Okay, a minute into it. Oh, are you serious? This is so pretentious. And then like three minutes into it. Okay, this is, he's really going for it. And then like, yeah, by the time you get it six minutes, I'm like, oh, I love it. Like that, that is so crazy to do. Like, I don't know that I admire that kind of risk taking. And so if you're that kind of person, you know, if if you're into A24 films, like you'll gravitate toward this. What I love about is just the vibe of this. It reminds me of Robert Eggers movies, The, The Witch and The Lighthouse, where I'm just transported to a totally different place that feels so foreign and yet feels so real. Like it, it, it feels like a place that could have existed at some point in history. History. It feels so actualized. And that's a huge achievement for these low budget, small indie films. Like, I don't know if they found real castles, like how many sets they had to build for this, but everything just, it looks so great. Like, I never feel like I'm in a cheap, low budget movie. It feels exactly the way it needs to feel. But yes, Lord of the Rings, if you want ring wraiths fighting and and all that adrenalized stuff, this movie does not want to adrenalize you. This is about pondering about your life and where you're at and have you had honor and and all those kind of things. How have you gotten, do you deserve what you've achieved in life? All those kind of things. That that is what this film is really about. And Justin, you're saying Dev Patel. I I, I want to compliment him on something. I finally, I, I've liked him in other films, but not the films he's been in. Like Slumdog Millionaire, I know that won the Oscar. I don't like it. Lion, eh, it's all right, I guess. Last Airbender, we talked about that one. <laughs> like, that's not good. No. But so I, I'm glad to see him finally act really well in a film that I actually like this time. Like that has not happened with him before. So, but yeah, th- no, this is a challenging film. And I think we need to challenge ourselves every once in a while. Like, look, we've done F9. We've done Black Widow. We've done Snake Eyes. Like, I'm glad we get a break from that and do the Green Knight. I need some meat. I, I, I need something hearty with all that sugar every once in a while here on now playing. So yeah, I recommend this, but it's a challenge. And, and so I think you know from listening to this, if you're up to that challenge or not, that this is an art film that's going to require homework either before or afterwards, like to really get the full experience. And like you said, Justin, I can't wait till this comes out for home viewing because it's one I definitely want to watch again. And once is not enough, recommend. Yeah, I'm going to side with both of you guys on all of this, starting with the idea, this is really a challenging and draining experience like I really was expecting more entertainment I really like with Tolkien's name associated with the poem there's giants and a talking fox in the trailer you really would think that would it would have a few scenes that were popcorn fun and that is never a presence of mind for David Lowry in this piece fun is not what he is here for 
This is not a good fantasy film. I'm also going to argue it's not a good horror movie. If you came because you thought it looked scary and it was going to have like trees coming out of the ground and grabbing you, in the strictest sense of the word, this is not a horror film either. Although nightmarish might be a better word. What it ultimately reminded me of, what I think it's a remake of, is The Seventh Seal. I mentioned Igmar Bergman before. That is an art movie from the 1950s in which Max von Sydow played a knight returning from the Crusades who gets baited into playing a game of chess with the Grim Reaper. And everything that he experiences in that game becomes this allegorical mishmash of, of memories from his life and his spiritual beliefs and nightmares all coming together in these haunting visions. And that is what this movie is. It is an allegorical nightmare about how difficult it is to live a moral life. And brooding, morbid, confusing. It's really hard to know on a first viewing how to feel about this. What is easy to identify is technically a beautiful looking film. Amazing visuals. You mentioned that those great giant shots, the talking fox, all of it is so sumptuous. But in service of what can be difficult to articulate. I left the theater grateful that it was a Thursday and that I would be able to go back tomorrow and try and figure out whether I liked any of that. Because I really wasn't sure. What did I just watch? What did all of that mean? And I will definitely say that on second viewing, the sediment settled. I did get to see layers that I didn't before. It was just easier to take in the movie because I wasn't so off balance the entire time. I knew what was going to happen and I could focus on the journey and how it was like the poem and how it deviated frequently from how the poem was. This is a Sir Garwin and Green Knight unlike ever filmed before. And I love it for that reason. I definitely am going to agree, though. I think the one weak link of this movie is they've created a, an allegorical center character. And it is not the fault of Dev Patel that Garwin is not that interesting. But you really wanted a character that the audience could identify with. You, someone that, like, we felt his ambition. We sided with him. At times, we we understood why he took the shortcut. And I feel like because this movie is interested in other things and is doing its mood pieces, we just don't have that psychological profile. It's just not going to pull you in to Garwin. And that's why it's called The Green Knight and not Sir Garwin in The Green Knight. <laughs> it's about death and how we confront that. And I think for that reason, it's a solid movie. But again, a struggle. And I will be taking a lot of time before I return to this movie again. It demands a lot, but I did like it. And I think people will, too. Again, that man behind me that was commenting the whole time, I really was curious what he was going to say when the credits roll. And he said, you know, that was a really interesting film. I've never seen anything <laughs> like it. And I just, I can't think of a better review. That is why you want to see it. You've never seen anything like it. Well, interesting. Three recommends on this. That's... That's impressive. Three greens for the Green Knight. Yes. I hate to speak for Arnie, but I really do. Just knowing the struggle that he's had with some of their more allegorical movies, I do feel like probably good that he took the week off. Like probably he was okay to skip that one. Heal your arm. Yeah. <laughs> Relax. Yeah. Feel better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't think about death or dismemberment or anything like that. And we'll catch you next week because we're going back to Suicide Squad. They have rebooted. I think it's not even a sequel. 
They pretended like that first one never happened, <laughs> and they got someone that made Guardians of the Galaxy, so we know we're going to laugh. Yeah, I'm just excited for King Shark finally making it up on the big screen. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that trailer, but I, I will say this. <laughs> it doesn't look like that first movie, and that's probably a good thing. And Arnie will be back with us this Friday as well. If you are a gold-level donor, we've reached the end, and we are at the last David Fincher thriller, Gone Girl. Maybe his best film? We'll debate that. But I want to thank you guys for filling in here and, yeah, going off the beaten path to see an art movie. It is really fun that now playing can do that, so that we have the ability to roam through all different kinds of genres. There's no movie that we're afraid not to confront. And it was great to go to The Green Knight with you, Justin, and you, Jacob. I really had a good time. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners. Even if you didn't go on the journey in the theaters to see this, thanks for joining us on the show. And until next time, Rest your bones, brave little knight. Christ is born. Christ is born indeed. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. What do you show me? Me We hope you've enjoyed the show. That is why a knight does what he does. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. He must seek me out yonder to the Green Chapel. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Tis but a scratch. <laughs> now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. What do you hope to gain facing all of this? You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Indulge me in this game find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Is it wrong to want greatness for you? You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks. Find the details on our website. Left out wage me. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Another year nearly gone already. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. I got lots of time. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Oh, greatest of kings. Associate produced by Jason Latham. You are not yet. Not yet. Now playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. You rest your bones. I'll finish your quest for you. Now playing credits read by Brock. I have none to tell. The opinions expressed on now playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. My champ must bind himself to this. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. 
All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. You seek him out? Was it not just a game? Perhaps. But it is not complete. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You'll find no mercy, no Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. But are we going to burn this film? Let's find out. Jacob, Justin, what did you think of The Green Knight? Other way around. Justin, Jacob. Okay. Justin, Jacob. Jingleheimer Schmidt. (laughs) (laughs) Justin, Jacob, 